Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network. For two decades, I've worked with leaders across industries to answer one central question. How can we make people's financial lives better? Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Listen in to hear how these visionaries are rewiring our society to support financial health for all. Twenty twenty four marks the twentieth anniversary of the Financial Health Network. I started this organization twenty years ago when Google was going public, and Mark Zuckerberg was inventing what was then called the Facebook in his dorm room at Harvard. The iPhone didn't even exist yet, and it's been a crazy wild ride. It's a really exciting moment for me, but not just for me, and not just for the organization. It's a moment that belongs to all of us, to everyone in the financial health community. It's a time for us to reflect, rethink, and rewire, to reflect on how far we've come, to rethink society's systems, and to prepare to rewire them to support financial health for all. Our season premiere is all about reflecting. We've invited three longtime financial health champions who have been with us throughout our journey. The first is Ellen Seidman, who is a non-resident fellow in the Housing Finance Policy Center at the Urban Institute. And she was our founding board chair of what was then called the Center for Financial Services Innovation. Next is Ariane Shuta, who was employee number three at the Center for Financial Services Innovation. Today is a policy advisor to the organization and He's the founder and managing partner of Core Innovation Capital. And then last, I'll speak with Tillman Urbick, who's the co-founder and managing partner of Flourish Ventures and was a founding partner of our Financial Health Pulse research. While upcoming episodes will be focused on future trends that will affect financial health, I hope you'll enjoy this important look back at the beginning of the financial health journey. Ellen Seidman, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thank you, Jennifer. It's so good to be here. You've spent decades working on community development and economic justice in the Clinton administration, at Shorebank, at the Urban Institute, and that's barely a snippet. Uh, tell me and tell our listeners, what drew you to this work? Uh, how, how did you end up in this arena? Uh, and, and how have things evolved in terms of your interests along the way? Oh, it was a long and winding journey that started in New Rochelle in the early 50s. New York, New Rochelle, interestingly, was the first northern city whose schools were desegregated by court order. Hmm. And I was um, I was in maybe seventh grade when that happened. And while The junior high school had always been integrated. The feeder elementary schools had not been. And um, a number of my junior high school colleagues had um, just been through what was a fair amount of turmoil as their schools were, were integrated. And I think that started me on a road of thinking about social justice issues. 
So you helped me launch what was then CFSI, the Center for Financial Services Innovation, when we were both working at ShoreBank. You were actually my boss at ShoreBank. Um, and I'm, re- I'm realizing now that we should probably tell our listeners, not all of them might be aware or know about ShoreBank. Um, ShoreBank was a, a commercial bank that was started in the 70s with a mission of demonstrating that one could be a commercial banker, a successful commercial banker, that is, make money, meet the regulatory requirements, while providing strong financial services to, in that po- at that point, Black communities in Chicago. And the focus was on Black entrepreneurs. Uh, the focus broadened out later. And in fact, Shorebank's major successful product was construction lending to small contractors, many of whom were actually Eastern Europeans. But the focus on being a successful commercial uh, bank, and by that I mean creating products that made their customers a success uh, in lower-income communities, that's what Shorebank was all about. So hopefully it's clear where the uh, the gleam in our eye around CFSI came from. It was really taking those lessons uh, from Shorebank and applying them to institutions that didn't necessarily see themselves as being mission-driven, but making the same case that there were opportunities to leverage the capital and the products uh, of financial institutions uh, for good in communities in ways that also were good for the bottom line. So what are your reflections on the journey that we've been on over these last 20 years? Well, I think to some extent, it started in 1996 with an obscure law that required the Treasury Department to set, to stop sending checks. And as a result, the Treasury Department discovered an enormous unbanked population. And then in the year 2000, we had a census that suddenly found an enormous Latino population, most of whom were also disconnected to the financial services system. Then along came the development of prepaid cards, which created an option to connect people to a financial financial services that wasn't cash and that wasn't a checking account. But then some other interesting things happened. Like after Hurricane Katrina, mm. the federal government tried to do disaster relief and discovered they couldn't find the people that they were supposed to be giving disaster relief to. And if they could find them, those people couldn't access their bank accounts. Mm -hmm. So something needed to be done there. Then we had the realization of the time that being unbanked costs you, that having to, to pay in cash was an enormous time sink for poor people that really, if it could be solved, people could be given back a huge amount of their life. And finally, the focus had had been for a long time on, on payments, on checking. 
But as other people were busily discovering, um, borrowing was a critical, critically important piece. Uh, savings was a critically important piece and planning. And one of the things that the Financial Health Network pulled together very early in its in its existence was that financial health involves spending, saving, borrowing, and planning, and that you have to think of them all together. So you did an incredible job, Ellen, of setting the table, right? Of reminding people sort of what was happening um, at the time. And, you know, we can track many of those developments all the way through. Uh, the Treasury is largely paying people electronically now, although they're still paying tax returns and checks. Uh, uh, people of color, uh, the Latinx community, others, while there is still uh, quite a ways to go to ensure that they are fully included in the mortgage market, the small business market, et cetera, are more included than they were 20 years ago, um, and on and on. So are we actually any better off? I think people are better off in the technical sense of access and also in some of the surrounding protections uh, to that access. So you have things like the CARD Act and the CFPB and um, protections that were not there in 2000. On the other hand, the economy has clearly made life very difficult for a large segment of the population. And whether it's just that we're more aware of it now, or whether the population whose finances are fragile, uh, who are vulnerable in FHN terms, um, really has increased. Yeah, we know it's increased from 2022 to 2023, but has it increased really um, over time? Who knows? But we do know that we went through a very, very long period of stagnant wages, stagnant real wages. And um, while an awful lot of what the financial services sector and FHN and all of its for-profit and non-profit partners have been able to do is make it make, make the money that you have go further mm-hmm. and in a more efficient way. If the incomes aren't there, people are still going to be financially fragile. So you referred a little bit in your answer to my last question to the way we measure financial health. And we uh, know that it's a holistic measure based on a whole number of different indicators of financial status. And we also know through our research and through our work that there is no one silver bullet. Frankly, even if we increased everyone's incomes, that probably wouldn't solve all of the challenges, although maybe it would come close. So from where you sit, what do you think is the one thing society needs to do that would make the biggest difference in financial health, especially for the historically marginalized? I really do go back to the income issue. If, if, and, and I, I mean, there's a little bit of the Lake Wobegon issue here. If everyone were paid a living wage, 
that would go a huge a huge way towards um, more universal financial health. The reason I say it's a bit of a like Wobegon effect is that some of that higher wage would definitely get um, priced into everything mm-hmm. people are buying. And so then the requirement for the living wage would go up and it becomes to some extent circular. I live in Portland, Maine. The minimum wage here is now $18 an hour and going up. And it was nowhere near that a couple of years ago. Now, the fact is we have a housing shortage and it still is hard for people to make ends meet, but not all of the difference between the former minimum wage and $18 has been priced into rents. Thank you for everything you have done and you do do for the Financial Health Network um, and for being my friend. Well, thank you, Jennifer. It has been a pleasure to have known you and worked with you for 20 years now. And I hope we have another 20. Ariane Shuta, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. So you were what was then CFSI's employee number three. Um, and we have been longtime partners in crime ever since. So I'm really excited to get a chance to speak with you today. You have spent now your whole career really working at the intersection of sort of technology, entrepreneurship, uh, investing in the social good. Um, tell tell everyone a little bit more about your journey. Sure. Well, since college, I was taken by technology and I fell into a startup and I really haven't left the startup scene since. I spent a decade uh, as an operator in a couple of venture-backed companies building educational software and then got excited about what Mohammed Yunus was doing with Grameen Bank. Professor Yunus got a Nobel Peace Prize uh, for work that many others have also done and been pioneers in, Um, but basically using private market ideas to create uh, microloans in the poorest places on earth that are essentially very, very small business loans and perform exceptionally well in the, the way that they're designed. And the and the particular design really captured my imagination. And I was thinking, gosh, there's got to be a way to do it in the U.S. That brought me to the south side of Chicago by introduction from a mutual friend. And I got connected to are now longtime mutual friends and colleagues at Shorebank. And that brought me to your desk. And I since learned that microfinance doesn't really work at scale in the United States as it was conceived in the third world. But there are many other things that one could do, which we've explored together for many moons now, using technology and the company of all kinds of different parties, public, private, for-profit, non-profit, to help create financial health. Well, before we get into fintech and fintech innovation, let's let's stick on technology writ large for a minute, because I've spent the last many months thinking about the last 20 years as we celebrate our 20th anniversary. I'd love to just hear you reflect a little bit on 
uh, technology and, you know, is it really all that? Uh, has it really helped save the world? Um, and now your new found enthusiasm for AI. Yeah. Well, clearly, I think the smartphone has been a transformative piece of technology and continues to be. And I I would give it credit for being a, a, le- a pioneer in helping increase access to financial services, both here and abroad. The other one that I feel like is less frequently discussed and maybe a remnant of a previous tech generation is the online marketplace. Hmm. Um, And its ability to really create efficiencies and connect people commercially and otherwise. So what's powerful about online marketplaces is that it really helps us match two parties who are otherwise unknown to one another and whom otherwise might never find one another. And the internet really makes that matching possible in ways that are impossible without it. So that's another big transformation I think has been very powerful and important in in advancing financial health. And the third one maybe is open banking. Uh, As I reflect on some of the checks that we've written or the companies that we haven't backed but have been transformative, I think those part and parcel to open banking have been, you know, I think the kind of the third leg of the stool of really uh, creating more access and more emancipation using technology in people's financial lives. Yeah. So... AI isn't exactly new. Um, no. uh, it's evolving um, and its capabilities are evolving. And what about AI uh, has got you most excited as we think about people's financial health and well-being? Where are the opportunities? Well, I really like this metaphor of what we're seeing in the automotive industry. And right, like at the end of the day, the car, most people don't love driving a car. Most people love their car for its efficiency and getting them from A to B. And most people comparably don't love managing financial lives. And we are stubbornly stuck in, you know, like a fairly low level of automation, despite all of our modern technology in using technology to manage our financial lives. That to me clearly is where it's going. You know, people like Scott Cook have for decades helped the the subset of the population who want to balance their checkbook and who want to monitor and optimize their lives and have the patience and kind of curiosity and discipline to do so with better and better tools for many, many years. And I think the lion's share of the population, just it's too complicated. It's nothing you ever want to do. You just want it to work for you. And so... I, that's I'm all in on that happening and on making incremental improvements in how that actually gets done, which really requires trust. So as we wrap up our time together, I want to pose one big hairy question. There's obviously no one silver bullet, uh, mm-hmm. but what's the one thing you think we need to do? to make the biggest difference in financial health. And when I say we, I mean society. It could be core, it could be the government. Pick your actor. Yeah. Well, 
I think the biggest driver in financial health is income. With more income, many things go away. Without income, we're dithering around the edges. And so I think the single biggest driver to doing that is a smart industrial policy that is smart about creating jobs here and better income here with with global trade and globalism. Ariane, the best part of this saying farewell to you on this show is that I'm going to get to talk to you later today and that we get to work so closely together. So <laughs> thank you for everything that you have done these last 20 years around financial health. You're such a leader in this in this field. And thank you for being being along for the ride. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a treat of my career. How will you improve financial health this year? Join hundreds of leaders to reflect, rethink, and rewire the future of financial health at Emerge 2024. Our special 20-year celebration is happening June 5th to the 7th in Chicago. Learn more and get your ticket at finhealthnetwork.org/emerge. Tillman Urbeck, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Hi, Jen. How are you? I am good. It's always nice to see you. You know, I love the fact, in particular, that when I discovered that you and I both have early careers as journalists in common. Uh, but, you know, I really don't really know much about your story of what led you to a career focused on inclusion and social impact. How did you how did you get from that reporter in Germany to today? Oh, wow. OK. That, <laughs> that, the short version. <laughs> yeah, it is a long and convoluted story. No straight line here. Yes, I did start out as a reporter, but then I did uh, study economics um, for all the way through to a PhD, massive overinvestment. I think two, there are two experiences probably in, in my professional life that set me on this past of the last 15 years or so. The first one was uh, very early on in my professional life, I worked in Africa. And uh, that was an eye-opening experience for me, sort of a middle-class kid from Germany, uh, because I realized that uh, families, um, hardworking families, in particular parents in the countries that I was working in, they essentially wanted the same as parents all over the world. They want some economic stability, they want some predictability in their lives, um, and they want a better life for their children, most importantly. Uh, but, was, but, but what was also true is, uh, that societies uh, had largely failed them and they just did not have the opportunity. So that stuck with me. And uh, fast forward 15 years, corporate career, I was with my family in India. Mm. And we lived and worked there for a few years. And those years reminded me of these early observations in Africa. And what had happened at the same time is in India, there was an enormous energy and ingenuity to actually do something about this. So there was a, a lot of entrepreneurship, both in government and private sector, actually, enormous creativity. And uh, when we came back to the US in 29, 2010, it was, I said to myself, you know what, let me put everything I've learned about uh, the policy, the macro policy environment that I learned at the IMF, 
let me put those learnings about uh, industry structures and how they can change, about the private sector innovation, technology-led innovation, which is what I had focused on in the years preceding. Let me put all of this together to a higher purpose, if you will. And that really set me onto this path that uh, has uh, culminated for now with Flourish Ventures. I think one of the other reasons why I have so enjoyed our relationship is because you have helped me to learn and understand more about the global dimensions of this work. Uh, And in fact, you were more focused um, in the developing world before you then trained your sites on what was also going on in the United States. I wonder if you might sort of paint a little bit of a picture. If you think about the last 20 years. Yeah, let me try to do that. I start on the global side, which is where indeed have a longer history for 20 years about. Um, And globally, uh, and with that, I mean emerging markets, really. We have come a long, long way. Uh, You must remember that when, when... I at least started when this field started some 20 years ago, the majority of working age adults were actually outside of the formal economy and outside of the formal financial system. So in least developed countries might well be 80%, if not more, of um, the working uh, population. Even in middle-income countries, it was like 50%. Mm. And, And living outside of the formal financial system is very rough. Imagine for a second... Uh, you don't have access to a savings account, to insurance, to the ability to uh, 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 transmit money. If you are a smallholder farmer in Africa and everything is done in cash, if you have a good harvest, then you have a lot of cash that you try to stash under the mattress and you try to tie over Um, the non-harvest season. And if the harvest fails, you are actually really, really in trouble. They call it the hunger season. So being outside of a formal financial system is very, very stressful and is actually for all of us here pretty unimaginable. Uh, And against that picture, we have made enormous progress, largely because of the cell phone as a sort of once in a generation tech innovation, and because it allowed to reach far more people with new and different services at a far lower cost. I, we, we track this globally, by the way. There is this um, uh, global survey called the Findex, which tracks this, and we have included some 1.2 billion people or so ever since we started measuring. What I realized when I learned about the U.S., I realized the issue was really not so much inclusion. In the U.S., uh, most people actually do have a job in the formal economy, and most people actually do interact somehow with the financial system. The problem is that uh, they're not served very well uh, and uh, that they're not financially healthy. And uh, you, the Financial Health Network, um, and you were very instrumental uh, helping me understand that. I remember very distinctly early on reading the manuscripts for the U.S. financial services uh, uh, diaries. It became very clear that the notion of precarious economic lives 
is a problem for the majority of Amer Americans. It reaches all the way into the middle class. Um, and um, then, of course, we teamed up to create a measurement infrastructure for the US inspired by that global infrastructure, measurement infrastructure that I just mentioned. Um, so we teamed up to do the US Financial Health Pulse to create a headline indicator that people can rally around. Mm -hmm. So in terms of achievements for the US, um, I do think this notion of having created awareness, this is not a fringe problem for very few. Um, the problem is a problem for the major majority of American households, and we should do something about that. And there are things we can do about that. To have created that awareness is probably the biggest achievement today. When we came to you and said, we have to be able to measure this idea of financial health, people don't know what it is. Um, you know, I really credit you with, with being able to see the power of what the Findex had done, the influence it had had. Uh, in not only making people aware, governments, uh, companies, et cetera, but also creating targets, if you will, um, and then seeing progress over time. Uh, so that was a really important insight that I think uh, uh, was really critical in the development of um, the financial health pulse, both the development of our measurement scheme, if you will, but then uh, annual uh, survey to essentially know how financial health of Americans is faring over time. So as we bring our conversation to a close, I'm gonna uh, ask you one last really giant question. Uh, and and let's, let's talk about the United States now, just to make it slightly easier. What's the one most important thing we might do that might make the biggest difference in financial health? Is it technology? Is it more income? Is it a better safety net? Hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm going to probably disappoint you here a little bit because I indeed tend to think in systems, and we as Flourish do. Yes. And uh, certainly when it comes to the financial system, we, we do believe that it requires all of the above. It requires tech-led business model innovation. It requires a, a, a policy and regulatory environment, which is both supportive, but also protective of consumer interests, sort of harness the upside of tech and minimize the new risks. Uh, it does require public digital infrastructure investments. We do all of that. Um, I mean, our bread and butter is for profit investing behind business model innovations, but we do have this ability to provide grants in the interest of the public good. And we apply the VC mindset to that. So we know that there's a different type of capital required, but we still are looking for people who are entrepreneurial, policy entrepreneurs, research entrepreneurs, ecosystem entrepreneurs like yourself. And, and we want them to have an eye on what constitutes their market test <laughs> and crowding in others. Because if something only happens because it gets a project grant money and then when the project grant runs out and it folds, then it obviously uh, didn't meet its relevance test. So no one silver bullet. I, I tell you one thing that we 
are excited about, and then I make the bigger picture caveat maybe at the end. One thing we are excited about, we, we are experimenting with participating in, um, in the public discourse, uh, the narrative around money and people's money. Um, that's very different from our traditional work. Of course, we don't do that ourselves, but we have backed uh, social media entrepreneurs. So we have we we have several partners. One is a social media influencer. Her name is uh, Haley Sachs. She goes as by uh, Mrs. Dow Jones. Has a big <laughs> following across um, the various social media cha uh, channels, and she picked up um, just relatively recently. She picked up this meme that went around that you might have heard about. It was sort of the girl math meme. Yes. It was meant to be funny, right? Oh, if I use my husband's credit card, then the purchase is free. Or if if I buy something with a discount, it's really more like an investment. It was meant to be funny, but it's also a bit toxic because it sort of perpetuates this idea that women aren't bad, aren't good with money and that they are bad at finance. And uh, so Haley, Mrs. Dow Jones, took issue with that. In social media and said that's i i don't like this <laughs> and her criticism was picked up very quickly by other influencers in the sphere and then very quickly by uh, mainstream media and uh, we are pretty convinced that through those channels you reach far more people with messages around money and how to think about it and how to take control of your life than you would with traditional financial literacy classes or these type of things. So, so we are experimenting. Um, this, this is not the one thing, but it's an interesting experiment. Tillman, I've always said that of all of our partners and supporters over these last 20 years, um, we have felt no greater alignment than with you and Flourish. And uh, we're deeply uh, grateful for all of your support and partnership and friendship. So thank you for joining me today. Okay, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Emerge Everywhere, powered by the Financial Health Network. Visit our website to get the latest financial health insights and resources and join the growing movement at finhealthnetwork.org.